Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the TMI Entrepreneurship Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker-Priori. And my co-host. Hi, I'm Joshua White. For today's episode, we have with us Vasal Gupta, who is the Professor of Management and Fred and Martha Bostick Faculty Fellow at the University of Alabama. Uh, Vishal has done a lot of really cool work during his career and has gotten published in top entrepreneurship and management journals. Um, but one of the really cool things about Vishal is he actually hosts every summer an entrepreneurship seminar, which we'll talk a little bit about today, that tries to encompass participants from over 22 countries. And it's been a multi-year thing and there are fantastic faculty members that speak at this seminar every year. So we thought he'd be really good to have on here as not only someone who's moved international, but who has spent a lot of his career so far facilitating international dynamics. So we're excited to have him on. Welcome, Vishal. So for this season, since we're talking about international dynamics, our icebreaker question is if you could live anywhere in the entire world for the rest of your life, just one place forever what would that one place be? That's not an easy question to answer. So we love travel. So I've traveled a lot around the world. And my favorite place to live remains the country of my birth, India. So that's where I was born. That's where I have family and friends. And that's where I would love to sort of, you know, go to the next you know, whatever happens after, you know, our time here. And, but my wife is from Portugal and I have to admit that her family has been the most kind and nicest people to me. So I love spending my time there as well. And I could see us spending a lot of time there, uh, not eternity, but, but a lot of time there. And I've been to Switzerland only once and I loved it very much. It was almost like what Hollywood feeds you as like fairy tales and castles and, you know, all that. So I could see myself sort of, you know, maybe working there for some time. But eternity will have to be hopefully in my own country, in the country of my birth. Well, that was actually um, our first question for you is, um, you know, you have a very interesting and intriguing backstory about how you got to where you are today. And so I was wondering if you could kind of walk us through, you know, um, you know, where you grew up, your education background, um, and uh, what led you to do uh, your PhD in management? Yeah, so I grew up in India, Delhi, which is the capital. And you know, when you're growing up, you don't realize sort of how fortunate you are, even if you are fortunate. And I know not everyone is, but I didn't realize how fortunate I was, you know, good, good family, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say we were, you know, rich or anything, but we didn't hurt for anything. You know, parents wanted to send me to a good school, which they did. Good private school, good, good, good neighborhood. Had lots of friends growing up. We played. That was the time when you played outside. And, you know, you, you know, as a young kid, you wanted to spend your time outside. And the concept of sort of sitting in your bedroom on your screens didn't exist back then. So, you know, that was my growing up years. Uh, education was highly prized, uh, especially by the parents. Uh, I think as a young teenage, 
you know, you don't sort of, you know, put that much emphasis on education yourself, right? You have all the other distractions uh, in the world. And, you know, we, we had those two. Of course, you know, compared to the distractions today, those times were much simpler. You know, uh, no internet back then, no, no, you know, no internet, no, you know, we didn't have so many channels on TV and all that, right? So much simpler times. Um, but good, good place to grow up, got a good education, went to a good school. You know, now that, you know, when I say, share with Sandra that Nelson Mandela, you, you know, came to our school, Winnie Mandela, we didn't even used to think like she was a frequent visitor. Yasser Arafat came to our school. Uh, Desmond Tutu. I mean, you know, when you're growing up, I, I didn't even think, I thought they, they, I mean, I didn't even think that they go or not go to other schools. You just sort of say, oh, they're here. Okay, what do I do? You know, I, what do I care kind of thing? But, you know, looking back, I realized how fortunate all that was and, you know, what global exposure that, that gave me. Um, then I went for my engineering undergraduate to a small college uh, about six, seven hours from Delhi. Uh, did my undergraduate in mechanical engineering. Uh, I, I have to admit that, you know, even though the time in the undergraduate years was good, I was not a good student. I didn't make some good choices as an undergraduate student. Uh, you see, it was always sort of given in my situation that I'll come and sort of join the family business. So I, I didn't really take the undergraduate years very seriously. I had no resume, no, you know, no, you know, I, I didn't take it seriously. I, I made some, you know, looking back, I, I, I made some bad decisions, I guess. Uh, but but I graduated. So, you know, I didn't sort of give it up or anything. I graduated and then joined the family business. And, you know, that was sort of my education. And I thought I was done with uh, with uh, with studies and education. And as life would have it, after a few years, it happened that I had more years to spend on college campuses than I ever thought was going to happen. So that's the story of growing up. What led you from engineering into management? So but my father was one of those old school types. Uh, you know, he, he started work very early in his life. He didn't get much of an education. So he knew he wanted his kids to get an education. And in his sort of worldview, engineering was sort of, you know, how, you know, the education. The family business was machine tools. Uh, so it was a very sort of mechanical engineering sort of business anyway. So it fit really well. And, you know, so that was the reason for going into engineering. I started going into the family business starting about 15 or 16. So I, I got early exposure. And it was always business that sort of excited me most more than the engineering side of things. Now, looking back, you know, like I said, I wish I'd made some different choices in college. And, you know, so when I became a professor, I started telling any guest speakers I brought to my class, I don't want you giving my students advice that college years are to have fun and drink. And, you know, these years are never going to come back because I've been there, done that. And that is not good advice for young people to listen uh, to, to get. So I was not sort of, a, you know, uh, so anyway, so, so the family business was, uh, you know, engineering, but it was always the business side that attracted me more. And when I had a chance to sort of go back to college for higher education, uh, I started in industrial engineering, which was sort of halfway between mechanical and business. 
And then I had a couple of very good professors at Penn State. Uh, both of them were highly instrumental in me sort of making the move to business. And <laughs> you see, I recently did a lot of research on family businesses because I was writing a textbook on, on entrepreneurship and small business. And it, I, it helped me learn that the challenge I faced as a 22, 23, 24 year old when I joined the family business is way more common than I thought. And for many years, to be honest, I was embarrassed to talk about that challenge in public because I thought, you know, it was unique to me. And when I started doing research on family businesses, because one of the chapters in my book is about family businesses, I realized that is a very common challenge. And the challenge was the conflict with the generation that was already in the business, which was my father. We 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 both love each other a lot, but when we were trying to do the business together, there was a lot of conflict, personal and professional. And again, in sort of researching this chapter, I realized that few members of both generations around the world, this conflict sort of exists around the world is what I learned from my research. Very few people actually have the training or the coaching or the mentoring to deal with this challenge of the generational conflict. Because the father, or you know, maybe increasingly the mother as well these days, is in two roles, right? You are the boss and you are the parent. And the son or the daughter, uh, increasingly family businesses sort of you know have daughters as well, is also in two roles. The the sort of child or you know, the adult child versus the subordinate. And it's very hard to sort of it's 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 increasingly difficult across, uh, you know, globally for sort of many people to deal with that challenge, and I think we were in that same boat. Uh, so we we did not deal with it very well, and it may be difficult to sort of understand that for outsiders today. But being in those being in that situation, when I started looking at okay, how do I you know, get sort of out of this, you know, conflict, day in, day out conflict that we were having. I had a cousin who just moved to the US and I had a friend who started a master's program at Purdue. And somehow they, the two of them became sort of my confidant for whatever reason. I mean, I'm not even very close to them anymore, but at the time they became my confidant and they said, hey, why don't you come to the US? And that was it. And had, had I had different confidants back then, life could have taken a very different turn. And who knows? So that's how it did. And then I came to Penn State to do my master's in industrial engineering. And you asked me about the challenges, right? Uh, I am very sympathetic to international students who come to the US. I have an Iranian student this year and a Greek student this year in the PhD program and a student from China 
uh, in the PhD program. My own experiences have made me sort of very sympathetic to what they face when they come to a different country. And what and there's many schools have no orientation program for international students to help them sort of acclimatize, to help them understand what are the challenges they're going to face, to help them understand what the expectations are. You are expected, and remember back then, you know, the internet was, you know, we didn't have Google. We didn't have, you know, all those things that people have today. So the awareness we had was so low, I cannot even sort of begin to tell you how low, how less my awareness was. My, I barely watched two Hollywood movies before I came to the US. So I had really no exposure to Hollywood movies either. My only exposure to the US was Nancy Drew books and Hardy Boys books. And I thought that's what America is like, right? Nice families with, you know, loving parents and loving kids and, you know, small town and everyone gets along with everyone. And Everyone's looking out for everyone. And yeah, so that was my exposure to everything American. Hardy Boys and Nancy Drews. That had to be tough, basing it off of those two books. And then you get here and you're like, oh, America is not quite what I expected from these two books. The good thing is that I came to State College, Pennsylvania, which is a small town, right? So it reminded me of sort of the Hardy Boys small town, right? So I thought, okay, this is okay. But the first time I went to New York City, I'm like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> you know? And yeah, that was a shock. Um, I made some good friends in the beginning. One of my oldest friends followed me into this profession. One of my oldest friends from those days, he was also at Penn State with me. He's now an entrepreneurship professor as well. So he followed me into this profession. Uh, so, you know, I made some good friends, but I think international students who come into PhD programs and master's programs need way more orientation than most schools realize today. What do you think that students could or should do to, you know, um, aid in their own transition? Because, you know, you were talking about like what a university needs to do, but what does a student need to do um, in making that jump? Yeah, so I think students also need to become more familiar with, with the culture and the norms of the place they are going to, right? Um, if you had asked, I came to the US on 11th August, 2001. I still remember that because that day sort of was so life-changing for me, right? And you know what happened on September 11, 2001, right? And, you know, I mean, for me, it was such a big sort of transition, first in August and then in September, sort of life again shifted drastically. And I think we, again, we're not prepared for that. So I think when students come, they need to sort of learn about the US. They need to learn about the norms and the culture of the place they are going to. They need to learn about the food and the you know the day-to-day -day of, of that place. I have an Iranian PhD student this time, and I think his biggest shock when he came, at least as far as I understood from his telling me, was food. Because Iranian food and American food, you know, especially in Tuscaloosa is, you know, there's, there's not much, much similarity. So, you know, but those things you don't think about, you don't think they will have such a big impact on you, right? Because, but then that's, you have to get up in the morning and have breakfast and lunch and dinner, right? And imagine all the three meals 
you have no idea sort of what to do, what to expect and what to have. So I think students need to do more groundwork before they come also. Now, I don't want to sound too old and say, well, these days kids have it so much better. You know, they can look up on the internet and read because we do know that, you know, the internet is a good source of information, but it's not always a source of good information. So, you know, uh, yeah. So I think the students also have a responsibility. I, I agree. But I think schools need to give them the resources that are good information for them to sort of go to. Yeah. Well, one of the ways that I think that you've um, kind of helped bridge the gaps internationally, um, some of the work that you've done is um, with the Summer Entrepreneurship Series that you've put together over the last several years. And so um, I was wondering if you could you can talk about that, uh, the VSSER and, um, you know, kind of what your role is, what it is, um, what's planned for 2023 how students can be involved in that and why that would be beneficial for students to participate? So VSSCR started for two reasons, primarily. When I was a PhD student, there was barely any entrepreneurship courses around the country at the PhD level. And most of us who were interested in entrepreneurship research went to Scott Shane's uh, summer seminar that was offered at Case Western. And I met a lot of people there. Some of those people you know, uh, Paul Drenovich, Craig Armstrong, they were all sort of in my cohort there. Sergey Yanokin, who's now at, uh, at one of the schools in Minnesota, I believe. Dave Datta, who's at uh, New Hampshire. We were all part of the same cohort uh, at, in the Scott Shane seminar. So that existed when I was a PhD student and Kaufman funded students going there. That program has stopped. And so PhD students, I thought, or I heard from students that they did not have a good sort of place to go get exposure to entrepreneurship research. Now, what has certainly changed in the US is that there's sort of more schools offering entrepreneurship courses in the PhD program, not all, but more schools, Alabama offers, for example, as, as you know. Uh, but I've been at schools where the entrepreneurship PhD was not offered as part of the PhD program. So there are still schools. So that was sort of one reason. And Scott Shane's PhD program was sort of my uh, inspiration, if you will. The other thing is because I care and love my country of birth a lot and the country where I grew up. Every year when I would go to India, I spend time at business schools there. I, I visit with people. I have friends who are on the faculty and so on. And I would hear students there say, we don't get exposure to good international quality research. And so that, and and I, I heard this not just from folks in India, but from some of the folks through other people in, in other countries as well. Um, so I thought, okay, during COVID, then, you know, Zoom became sort of accepted and Zoom became popular. And so we, we started this virtual summer seminar series. The first year we had students from 20, students and junior faculty from, I think, 22 countries. The second year we had from 19 countries. And it gave us a forum where you could be anywhere in the world and sitting in your living room or home office or bedroom, you could plug into this program where 
people from around the world are attending and listening to leading scholars. And what we do is we invite leading scholars. We've had Laura Huang, who's famous for her work in gender and entrepreneurship. We've had Sarah Thibod, a sociologist who's famous for her work in gender and entrepreneurship. We've had Mark Gruber, the editor at AMJ, um, Peter Klein, the past entrepreneurship division chair and a world level scholar in terms of Austrian economics and entrepreneurship. So we've had all, and I think he's also been a guest in your podcast, I believe. So we've had all these people on this sort of in, in virtual summer seminar as, as guest speaker. And what we want them to share with students is a few common things. How did they get to entrepreneurship research? What areas of entrepreneurship research do they do work in? What is the future potential of those areas of entrepreneurship research? What are some of the conversation and the debates in those areas? So that's what we focus on in the summer seminar. We've offered it for two years already. We plan to offer it the third year this time. So again, this year, and hopefully it can continue as long as I can. And when I am no longer able to, some young, young Turk, as they, you know, said, call them back in the day, young Turk, like yourself or Ashley or somebody else around the world can say, now that Gupta is retired or is no longer doing it or is, can no longer do it, I am going to take it over. And, and to be honest, it may look very different, right? Like Scott Shane's seminar was different than what I do, but that was my inspiration, right? So in the future seminar, if somebody else takes it over someday, could look very different from what I do, but still sort of be in the same mold. That is, expose the young generation to good quality research without sort of imposing any uh, one way of thinking on them. So... You kind of talked a little bit, Vishal, about VSSER opening up these previously unaccessible means for international students to get exposure to these entrepreneurship topics and relationships. How important do you think building these relationships is for these PhD students who may not be local to the place they want to go. Let's say students in India wanting to come to the U.S. or go to Europe when they're done. How important do you think these relationships across borders is that VSSER and other programs like it can facilitate building those relationships, even if it is virtually? So let me answer that question a little more broadly to begin with. There's been a lot of conversation in the academy journals about globalization and what it means for management research to become globalized. Has there been more international publications in management academy journals? Yes. Okay. So from that perspective, we seem to be becoming global. You go to the conferences, there are people from other countries we seem to be globalizing. But that globalization has sort of a hidden side to it, the side that not many people see. And that hidden side is that, that globalization is almost like scholars and ways of thinking from one or two countries sort of dominating the conversation. 
So if let's say you are in, I'll pick some country, let's say you're in Portugal and you want to you know, publish in the top journals, you have to learn the conversation, of course, that's true, but you almost have to become like an American or, or a European scholar in Portugal to publish, okay? You're not really contributing the Portuguese thought into the conversation, okay? So my hope, my long-term dream for this profession is that the playing field will become way more level, that it will be, yes, there'll be good schools in the US, but there'll also be good schools in China. There also will be good schools in Europe. There'll also be good schools in India. There'll also be good schools in other parts of the world. It could be an American scholar who wants to study, you know, something going to one of those top schools in India and say, I am going to spend my time here and do research. But for that to happen, and you know, I'm just sort of one person in sort of this, this whole this whole conversation, for that to happen. PhD students and junior faculty in those areas that are less represented in the academy today, whether it is India, whether it is, for example, we've had uh, in VSSCR people from many African countries. For them, they need to learn what the existing conversation is. Then they need to go sort of look into their own history and their own coursework to see how they can bring those thought, those ideas into this conversation, right? And then you will see sort of a mutual appreciation grow. Uh, for example, uh, I recently was interviewing this professor at UML. Uh, he's challenged the idea that Adam Smith should be considered the father of economics. And he's placed sort of the fatherhood of economics or the founding of economics, you know, to before, uh, you know, the common era saying that, you know, that's where the origin of economics is. And a lot of what is in the wealth of nations actually comes from sort of that time period. So th th that's interesting, right? But for that to become part of the conversation, somebody needs to sort of, you know, be an expert in entrepreneurship and management research as it is today, as well as sort of be knowledgeable about those ideas to bring them into the conversation. So that's where I think it's important for uh, people in India or Africa or, you know, uh, some of the European countries and some of the Latin American countries uh, to make relationships, be a part of the conversation, attend the conferences. Okay, so last question for you. Uh, knowing what you know now of having this career that you've had, what is one piece of advice you wish you had had when you first started your PhD program? So first, my career is still ongoing, right? I'm not looking back at it sort of at the end of my career. So, so, so keep that in mind. I think back when I was a PhD student, we did not hear much emphasis on publishing as PhD students. And maybe it was also different times. Like today, of course, you know, we see that to get a good job on the job market, you're expected to have you know, X number of publications already and a very advanced pipelines with A, R and R's and at top journals, uh, you know, those were sort of simpler times. But I do think that, you know, in some ways it would have been better if our faculty had been more sort of repetitive. And this has to be sort of repetitive about 
you know, the importance of publishing. And this is what I tell my doc students now, the importance of taking rigorous methods courses. That first is, yes, the requirements of methods courses have changed over time, right? I mean, back in my day, SCM was considered cutting edge when I finished my PhD in 2006. If you knew SCM, that was cutting edge. Today, of course, you know, SCM is no longer cutting edge. You know, graduating PhD student is expected to know at least basic SCM. Um, so I think some of some, you know, methodological practices sort of advanced over time, which they will continue advancing, to be honest, in the future. But I think whatever the practices are at that moment in time, it's good for the doctoral students to keep in mind that they have to take rigorous methodological courses because the likelihood that they will be able to find the time to take more methods courses in their first few years on the job is very less. That means their methods training needs to be good enough to see them through the first few years. And of course, the, the publication part. And, and I understand that, you know, a lot of doctoral students are told that they will form teams and, you know, they can sort of look towards a team member to do methods, you know, the contribute methodologically and all that. But my experience, Ashley, has been over the years that in this profession, you're going to find all sorts of co-authors. And even under the best of circumstances, not all co-authors are equally motivated on a given paper, right? So even under the best of circumstances where they are all, you know, want to do it, they are not equally motivated at a given time. So I think one needs to know good methods yourself so that you are not fully dependent on your co-authors if you need to move the paper fast. Your tenure is your tenure. Your publications, sort of you decide how badly you need them and you need to have the training to be able to move them ahead if you need to, uh, regardless of the motivation or the timeline of your co-op. Thank you for being on here. When Joshua suggested you, I was excited, but after having you on here and hearing your responses, I'm even more excited for people to hear this episode. Thank you for asking me to be on it. Uh, I've always looked at this podcast and wondered when my day will come. So I guess this was my day. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you you did an awesome job. And, you know, I think this is going to be perfect and, and hopefully perfect timing to drum up some interest, you know, for the VSSER in the summer. And, um, you know, it'll be great. So again, a big thanks to Vishal for being here today for our last episode of International Dynamics. We also want to thank all of you for listening. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, please feel free to reach out to our email address, tmientpod at gmail.com. And Andrew, Josh, and I look forward to reading your suggestions and hearing from you. And until next time.